seeing my parents work two jobs, both of them working two jobs to get me through private schools. Um, my parents came to this country, not with the notion of what can we get from this country, but what can we give back to our families where they're at? And you see that with a lot of remittances that people who come to the United States send back to their families. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Hey everybody, this is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen, and as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce himself. Frank, please go ahead. Well, Maurice, hi, it's great to be here. Um, Frank So, and boy, I was thinking about what to say when I introduce myself, and the first thing that came to mind is that um, I am a son of two migrants to the United States. I think that has become even more important as I, I think as, as one gets older, you kind of look at who you are, you know, and, and, and why you are who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's the first thing that came to mind. My mother is from uh, Lima, Peru, mm -hmm. and my father is from Bangkok, Thailand. They, they are two places that have extraordinary food. I totally so agree I, with you there. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's really shaped part of um, what I've become. Um, but it's it's um, it's really part of the culture that um, has blossomed, which which puts me at odds when people say which is the better food because mm -hmm. um, it's uh, it's two wonderful cultures. So I'm a son of two migrants to the United States who who came from their countries during difficult economic and and in in the view of my mother, um, socioeconomic times where mm -hmm. Sendero Luminoso or Shining Path. Uh, created a lot of hardship for the people living in Peru. So they they were part of that wave that came to the state, the U.S. in the early 70s uh, for that American dream. And um, the, the other, a couple of thoughts came to mind when, when I've been asked to introduce myself in other environments, especially mm -hmm. in the environment that I'm in now. Um, I've, I'm a, I'm a product of Jesuit education. So um, Catholic upbringing, but really Jesuit, Catholic Jesuit values on social justice, on servant leadership, um, where I think that's helped guide my life decisions um, of who, who I continue to become and who I continue to want to be. So, um, but if I were to give you the, the resume version, mm -hmm. I, I, I think I would say uh, um, I was born in New York City. Um, very proud to to have that background behind me. And how how long really, did you live in New York? Uh, oh, not long. About four years. Uh, okay. We moved uh, to Lima, Peru, mm. for a few years. Then California, and I'm really a West Coast um, child, as that's where I really grew up um, for most of uh, the end of grade school, middle school, and high school. And so, um, Oregon 
this little uh, state uh, between two major states, um, California and Washington, uh, is really a, a diamond in the rough. And it's a place where in you know, Portland itself, especially the cities are very progressive, but the state itself is, is somewhat conservative. So it's an interesting place to have been uh, brought up. But uh, yeah, that's where I'm from. Um, I studied at Seattle University, at Jesuit University, and made my way from Seattle to, to work for a company when I graduated called Costco Wholesale. Hmm. You, I mean, you might have heard of it. It's yes. a small little company yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, where I, uh, I worked through college. And then after college, I, I started out uh, boxing food. Hmm. um and pushing carts uh, costco is a place that pays their employees well um and it helped me really have some summer money just like any other kid mm -hmm. um but then i realized that they treat their employees really well and so i continued on the costco track um evenings and weekends and working in the days as a permanent substitute uh, elementary school teacher yeah, but uh, wow. you know, at, at that time, school teachers made seven dollars an hour. Yeah, and um, like many other Americans, um, you can't live on seven dollars an hour. And sc with school loans, um, I decided that uh, I did need to offset it with my work at Costco, and so I'm very thankful for that opportunity. And when I talked to them about moving up in the company, they said, "Well, at Costco, you just..." just because you have a degree frank and you're a student body president and you graduated to a magna cum laude here that's nice but you really got to understand the business so i went through a management training program at costco wholesale mm. and i started out as a as a janitor the title was janitor i had to do six weeks um working cleaning the bathrooms sweeping the floors learning how to drive a zamboni which is a treat <laughs> if you've ever had to do one um, where you actually press the wrong button and all the water comes out and then you spend hours mopping. But um, it's, uh, you know, from the CEO down, it's a real humility check as to before you manage people, really walk, clean, smell in their shoes. Mm. So um, my early career started in the private sector. It started as as a cart pusher janitor at a Costco. And um, slowly I made my, my way up to management, um, helping Costco uh, expand their business um, around the West Coast and into different lines, different hard lines as they like to call it. So not the food stuff, but things like furniture and mm -hmm. custom services. So that, you know, now not being in the private sector, I appreciate so many things I learned in the private sector. Um, you know, I, I joke around about my career going from Costco to Khartoum mm -hmm. and Khartoum, Sudan, that is. Yeah. But basically it was an excellent opportunity to learn a lot of important skills in the private sector and take them to the nonprofit sector, which is where I've been, uh, since my time at Costco mm -hmm. in in the late nineties, um, early two thousands. So, so why did you leave uh, that particular career? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. Why did I leave Costco? Um, 
I didn't leave it for any negative reason. I, in fact, if anything, um, I was probably more afraid of the golden handcuffs. Um, the job pays well, it treats its employees well, but I felt like having not just uh, a background with two migrant parents, but also just a lot of my education and my upbringing, I felt that I, I needed to choose a path or a career which would let me serve people more with my cultural background, with my languages. Um, I, I spoke Spanish at home with my mother, uh, understood a bit of Chinese and Thai with my father. Um, but I could also understand how to relate to people in different ways that um, served in the business community, but I felt could be even more useful um, in the international context. So I, I, I left Costco and after working there for four, four plus years and mm. um, decided, uh, let, let me give a shot at a master's and decided to get a master's in conflict resolution. Uh, I had an uncle who was an ambassador of uh, Canada to various countries. Um, and then I'd also seen my parents in many ways struggle with how they adapted to the U.S. Um, and learned to succeed. But I felt that story was a story that many migrants in many countries were facing. So I thought, what could I do? Um, and, and really, in essence, how do I pay forward all the blessings that I've had in my life? Mm -hmm. So I went to get my master's and I thought, there's not a lot of people that have the opportunity to get a master's. And so I owe it really to them to do something with the opportunities I've been given. So I went for a master's at the University of Ulster. So if any of you listeners out there know um, Ireland or Northern Ireland, um, the University of Ulster is in a town called Derry. And for the Protestants or the, the British side, it's called London Derry. And it's part of the um, North of Ireland, um, which is so unique because of the conflict. And I had the opportunity to study there under the Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, Laura John Hume, mm. and who helped negotiate the Northern Ireland Peace Treaty. And so for me, having parents and having from other countries and knowing that they came from countries that are in conflict, I always thought, well, how do I contribute back to that? How do I make the world in many ways a better mm -hmm. place, right? And so I thought this master's would help. And I finished the master's with a research study in Bosnia to try to understand how politics and religion come to odds and not are just the parts that separate cultures, but how they can help unify, especially in conflict areas. So I did a great study there for about three months and decided, do I go back to Costco with this? Or do I continue on this path? And I thought, you know, I need to try out this path more. Mm -hmm. And not that I felt that I could always go back to Costco, but Costco was there. Mm -hmm. So I uh, signed up to be a volunteer for a small Catholic non nonprofit, an NGO called Vitas. It's in based out of San Antonio, Texas. And I currently sit on their board. And it's really a whole bunch of volunteers of different ages, uh, from recent college grads to um, to people who are retired and they volunteer either in the United States or abroad. And so I said, you know, I've studied a lot about conflict, um, especially about the genocide in Sudan and Darfur. So I said, I want to go there. 
And the Salesian sisters who, who help manage the program said, it's a little dangerous. And I said, it is. I said, but I really would like to go. So I was paired up with a, a person now who's a lifetime time friend of mine and a brother to me, um, Matt Patorti, who, Matt, you better be listening to this podcast. Uh, but uh, paired up with him and, and they sent us to Rwanda for three months first wow. um, to help out the Salesian brothers and sisters out there. And we worked at um, an orphanage in Kigali, uh, which was... You know, if anyone's ever been to Kigali or seen the movie Hotel Rwanda, it's a real, it's a place where there was a lot of conflict. Mm-hmm. So in terms of combining my desire to be of service with my desire to understand conflict and my really a selfish desire to travel too, mm-hmm. this was a great stepping stone. And so, in fact, I spent my birthday that year at Hotel Rwanda or the Hotel Mikolin, as it's known there. And, um, it was really an, an important place to first, you know, not just have been, I've been in Morocco and Egypt, but really to be in Africa itself, Africa proper. Um, and really kind of understand what the culture is like spending not just a week or two weeks on vacation, but really a solid three months working with the Salesian sisters who work with the poorest of the poor living in community um, and with really a community of 58 young women who all have HIV. And it was a shock because it's, you know, when, you, when you're coming from the United States and I mean, a lot of privilege, even though my family was not a family with a lot of money, um, you know, you're coming to communities and, and, you know, I'm first time working with little kids of that age, for mm-hmm. example, um, you know, and, and knowing that HIV can't be transmitted just on touch, but, still not being sure is like, how do you help somebody who has HIV? Especially, you know, when French is not a language that I'm strongly suited in. And and I remember one of the sisters passes a, a little girl. Uh, she says, hold her. And she's crying and she's got, you know, mucus all over her nose. The flies are everywhere. Um, so I grabbed the little girl and I think the little girl was in shock because she kind of stops crying and she looks at me. And we're in this village outside of Kigali. And, and I say to the sister, I said, well, I, I think it worked. She said, I think you scared the child, Frank, because she hasn't seen too many non-Black people in her life. <laughs> so, so I'm holding this girl and I realize this is more like an infant. And I realize, you know, at that point, all my fears of how do you, because I don't have kids. So uh, how do you hold a baby? What if she falls? You know, like, uh, how fragile is this child? It all went to the wayside just by holding her and seeing that she just needed the human touch. And so it was a really profound moment, Maurice, that just really made me realize that it's really about that connection that you have that sometimes breaks barriers of language or perceptions. When I gave the child back to to one of the other sisters, I said, well, sister, what, what's wrong with that child? Why was it crying so much? She said, well, Frank, she's got this terrible infectious skin disease. But then I realized yeah, it's it's going to be okay. Um, and, and so I realized, you know, I realized something that maybe you don't until you have a child or, or you take care of a child that, you know, sometimes you just need to comfort people in certain ways. And, you know, I'd grown up a lot with a lot of hugging in the Latino life. You're always hugging and, and giving a kiss on the cheek. 
Um, but it's 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 different with a child, and 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 it was really a beautiful moment. But not to stray away too much from the point, um, you know, that was a great entry point into mm -hmm. into really just being with people and being of service and meeting people where they're at. Um, and Be then, before you before you continue, Frank, I have two. I would like to yeah. take you back. Um, I have two questions about what you have uh, shared so far. I mean, the first question is, um, you know, that that realization that you felt that, you know, you didn't want to um, continue uh, working for Costco, you know, but doing something else more, you know, um, working on something that was more related with struggles that your parents had. When did that, when did that happen? Was that, did you know that already before you started working for Costco? Or was it after, you know, three, four years where, you know, you kind of reviewed, is this the life that I want to continue? No, this is where I go. Um, that's the first question. The other question that I picked up on is that you mentioned like, you know, another reason for getting into this work was selfish and because I wanted to travel. Um, it's something definitely I can relate to. I mean, the reason that I started to study was because that you know, anthropology is a study where you can travel. Um, and then later in my life, um, yeah, I got a passion for the work that I'm still doing today. I, 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 I did not have that when I was, you know, 17 years old. I wanted to travel. So that was my starting point. And I'm always in awe when, when when I talk with people who had this already when they were five, six years old. That's not me. So yeah, can you can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um I think seeing my parents work two jobs, both of them working two jobs to get me through private schools. Um my parents came to this country not with the notion of what can we get from this country, but what can we give back to our families where they're at? And you see that with a lot of remittances that people who come to the United States send back to their families. And so like my father told me once, he said, you should never ask for unemployment, never ask for food stamps, never ask for anything. Um, and I don't know if it was a matter of pride or if it was a matter of this country has served us enough and given us opportunities that we should not take anything else from those who really, really need it. And so when I, and kind of that modality of you've got to work really hard, you got to give back, you've got to give to others that my parents always had. And even in some ways, self-sacrificing of them to not receive any of the entitlements, which they pay taxes into. Um, that mindset had always created for me this, I think, overwhelming desire to ensure that the responsibilities my parents had placed on themselves also transmitted to me. And by that, I mean, I took out a college loan. And so I think there was a part of me that always wanted to do the international work, perhaps, um, because I'd traveled a lot when I was young and seen that there was really a need to, for more than what I saw when I was fortunate to live in the US. But I had that overbearing desire in my father's voice saying, you've got a college loan, you've got debt, you need to pay that off. And that's part of the reason why I didn't even really think about doing more work abroad or even volunteering until I could pay off those loans. 
and why I worked so hard at Costco. Um, I remember even at Costco, Sundays is pay and a half. So I would always volunteer to work eight hours. Um, and when we set up new stores, as I moved up management, I'd go travel to set up those new stores because you would work crazy hours and double time. And that was the whole way that I could pay off my school loans. And ergo, by doing that, feel like that responsibility to my parents was met, um, that I could not be in debt and that I could save up some money so I could continue to go to my, get my master's mm -hmm. and not ask them for help because I felt like my parents had worked so hard already. Um, and again, when they came to the U.S., they had very little support. So unlike me, who's taken a lot of vacations in the last 10, 15 years, my parents never really did take vacations. Hmm. They, um, they just work two jobs to make sure. And, and they don't, they still to this day don't take many vacations because they hold on to their money because they say, well, something bad could happen. And some days I think that mentality is actually a healthy one. Um, they don't buy anything extravagant. Um, they've lived in the same house for 40 years. Um, and uh, even when I looked at a car, when I got my job at Costco and I got promoted and I thought, oh, I'm going to buy a Land Rover. And they said, well, what about a Toyota? <laughs> um, so I think that was that responsibility, mm. um, which didn't allow me really to think about working abroad, although that was still in the back of my mind as to how do I, you know, when when you're seven years old and you're in Peru and you're eating in a restaurant and you see a kid that's your age coming up to the window who has their clothes are just tattered and dirty and they're looking at the food that you're eating that stays with you. And I think that is an image that has always reminded me that there's people that are, that need help. I mean, you go to a lot of third world countries and you see kids selling gum on the bus, selling a day old newspaper. It's so common and we brush them off, but that could have been me. And so now that I think about that, I also think as, as, as I was at Costco, as I was moving forward, that was always in the back of my mind, those images, those thoughts of there, there are people now who are my age who will never have this opportunity. So I needed to pay those loans. And as soon as I paid down my loans, I felt, okay, now I'm free to go mm -hmm. do something else. And that's what really triggered the moving from the private sector. Really, it was, it was, mm -hmm. it was a stepping stone to be able to do more service to others. Got it. The other thing I would say in terms of, you know, my comment, is it selfish to travel? Yes, but not in a negative connotation. Mm. Many people think that the word selfish is just something just, I mean, it is for you. Um, but if you combine something that's for you, like the ability to travel and do good, then I think you offset that negative connotation of what selfish means. I mean, most of what we do in life is selfish. The question is, how do you transform the selfishness for others? And then is it not selfishness anymore? Perhaps, but there's still, it's still your desire. When you donate to an organization, it's because you believe in it. It's your, your desire, your selfish desire to do something good and sometimes under your name. And so it was my selfish desire to be able to see if I could travel, travel around the world and really an odd part of traveling because I traveled to conflict countries to do some good. Um, and so I, I, I still enjoy that selfishness, you could say, mm -hmm. to travel. But when I travel to stay at eco-friendly locations, when I do travel for vacation, or 
to try to visit something that has a humanitarian cause or a charitable reason and donate to that or make sure that what I'm doing doesn't contribute to anything negative. So do no harm in my, in my selfishness. Um, so yeah. Yeah, take, take us, let us, let us take a jump, um, uh, Frank, uh, bring us to, you know, the work that you have done for the uh, US government, you know, all the different uh, types of, of jobs that you had. Uh, tell yeah, us about so it. shortly after leaving Sudan, um, having worked at the UN and the IOM system, I decided that the multilateral work is important, but as an American, I could help influence my government and help make a difference um, being a U.S. diplomat. And we don't even call it diplomatic corps. We call it the Foreign Service. And I didn't want to go into the State Department. I wanted to work with communities in need directly. And even though directly is still not even direct when you do work for the U.S. government, because at the U.S. Agency for International Development, where I spent over 10 years of my life, mm -hmm. I worked um, in this bureau that looked at uh, crisis, conflict, and humanitarian assistance. And I worked for a small office within USAID called the Office of Transition Initiatives. And we looked at how do you help influence attitudes, perceptions, and behavior so that you can have real community-led decisions and solutions come from the bottom up and also help influence the type of govern governments that people want and need, not the governments that are imposed from top down. So we are, it's really how do you give people a voice or how do you bring more transparency to the needs of communities and working the communities that are most in need and the countries that are most um, turmoil. So I went to the US government and really found that there's a lot that you can do in the US government um to influence and sometimes you have direct relationships with people in powerful positions making decisions about budgets or about policies and i think having a very outward personality and um i wasn't really able to speak my mind and i'll be honest with you it was very hard in some administrations when i didn't feel that the administration and their values supported the values that i felt and it necessarily didn't have to be left against right or right against left, but it was really about what the priorities were of each of the administrations. Hmm. I will say, and I'll be very candid, that I have worked on uh, both the Obama administration, the Hillary campaign, and later the Biden administration. And during my time working more in a political function of each of the administrations, especially working on foreign policy and human rights, Mm -hmm. for those um, different administrations, I really do feel like I did make an impact. Um, a lot of the white papers have content that I helped write. Um, and that's really gratifying mm -hmm. because of all the years of experience, at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, what does it culminate to? Everything that you do, what is the legacy of what you're trying to do? And how do you find a way to make that impact something that is not only important for you, but important for the people that, that you care about and the issues that you care about. And some of those people who more than likely you will never ever meet in your life. And so that is, 
that is the work I did in the U.S. government. I'm very proud to say that I've interacted with some of the highest level officials um, at the top of the administration, from the president, the vice president, their spouses, um, secretaries, and met many ambassadors and now undersecretaries that are colleagues of mine that work with me at USAID, at the State Department, at the NSC, um, at civil society that have been raised up. And I am happy to see that. And I'm happy to see that because there are people who believe in dialogue. Hmm. And dialogue is so important. And so even in my time in the U.S. government, my, my biggest thing is how do, how do I reach out to, to my Republican colleagues? How do we talk about issues that matter? Um, and how do we just avoid the extremes to get to common ground that we need to work on? So I, I've really found that my time, you know, a lot of people talk about the swamp and how terrible the government is. People also have to be reminded of what is good in the government. So, Frank, I mean, you, when I hear you talk, I mean, you're proud of what you did. Uh, you were making an impact. Um, you know, you worked in, in different countries. You worked on the Hill, right, as well. Mm -hmm. And then you decide to go back to Portland. Where it started. <laughs> so why? Why did you, you know, make that switch? Yeah, you. I believe that all politics are local, as the cliche goes, and it's true. At the end of the day, what Washington is is a representative of the people and of the people on the ground. Now, having, I'll be honest with you, having traveled the United States with um, former President Obama with. Um, President Biden and Vice President uh, Harris, uh, you realize that there's things on the ground that you get a snippet of it in the news, but it takes a lot of work. And anybody who's concerned about their kids' schools or the water quality really realizes that everything's locally driven. And yes, it is the economy stupid, as the saying goes, but the economy is also very local. And so, yes, there's things that can be influenced at the federal level, but I also knew that at some point, um, as a former President Obama said, who was a community organizer, go back. Go back to, to where you're from and make a difference there too. Um, I think the examples of someone like former President Barack Obama or any of the leaders who you think of with fondness are people who really went back to their communities and really know something well. They're not 30,000 feet up all the time. Um, they're the people who you can relate to. And that's on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, independents and non-affiliated. Um, they're the people who know the owner of the local grocery store, the manager. Um, those are the people that, that you should want to emulate to be more like. And so I knew at some point I would come back home. And quite honestly, I think we all can see, you know, as our parents age, it's time to come closer to home. So that was a big motivating factor. But the other, I think, factor that tipped me over the edge was when my hometown, which I consider this hometown of Portland, Oregon, was in the news after a lot of the riots of 2020 and and the injustices that the country felt. Portland bared a lot of that on its shoulders. And I was when, when all of that was happening post George Floyd, I was at the U.S. Embassy in Bogota, Colombia. And I remember the ambassador calling me in and saying, hey, Frank, um, is everything OK at home? And I said, well, why wouldn't it be? He's like, well, I see Portland in the news. and I know your mom's there. 
And I said to him, sir, it's just a few square blocks, but things are rough. And, you know, having a great career abroad, leaving on, on really top of my game in, in Colombia, working on migration and Venezuelans and the conflict there, but thinking about just how things were going on at home and COVID, you know, I, I talked to friends, I said, ah, you know, how are things at home? And they're like, oh, Frank, you, you don't come back to Oregon. It's not what it was in the 90s when you were here. It's it's dangerous. There's there's a lot of homeless. It's it's not a place to come back to. And Maurice, I'll be honest with you, that was the reason why I wanted to come back to Portland even more. Hmm. We don't do what we do because it's easy. We do things because they're a challenge and because of our love for them. You have children. You've raised children, and children aren't easy all the time. But you love them. Um, Oregon's home. You love your home, and because it's hard you should want to come back and do justice by making it better. And so that was even more of a reason to come home and where I am today. And if I may, I would say coming back to, to Oregon, working for a nonprofit that really gives a damn about its community mm-hmm. was just, the right way for me to be able to say after all these years working in all these other countries trying to solve their problems or help their communities out i should be doing the same at home and so that's why i came back but tell our listeners what are you doing now uh, frank So I am the executive director at Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon. Mm -hmm. It's a Christian-based faith organization that encapsulates 15 of the mainline Christian denominations, but also works with our interfaith uh, friends, Mm -hmm. um, such as the Jewish Federation, the Muslim community in town, um, but also works with people, ironically, of no faith, which is Mm -hmm. great. you know, I think as this organization uh, has been around even longer than that as a Council of Churches of Oregon and of Portland. Mm-hmm. They've worked uh, tirelessly for years on migration issues, on uh, farmers' rights, a lot of blue-collar issues, and has really adapted itself to the needs of the community. And I am very proud to say that coming up on our 50th anniversary, Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon, known as EMO, is growing even more. And while it's sad to see many churches get older and grow smaller, um, I think there's a large appetite for social justice from the larger community to say, I want to be involved and I don't want to be labeled. And so many of those folks come here to EMO um, to be involved in issues that matter in their communities without a label or without having to go to church or mass or service, but still want to be involved in social justice issues that are so much more than themselves and are so tied to the faith community. Mm. So I think, you know, there's there's a growing appetite, even in a state which has the high which has the highest rate of least attendance at churches, there's still such a great appetite to do social justice work. And being the executive director at EMO, I get the opportunity to, to see that work, to support that work, and to help grow it in the right directions. Mm. Um, one of the things that I, I mean, I should tell you, Maurice, that I am most proud about is 
BMO has been working with unaccompanied homeless youth for over 13 years. And now that homelessness is such an issue, people are turning to us as the, the leader and the expert in the state. And the largest indicator of a homeless adult is a homeless youth. So if we can work, and we have, we've touched lives of over 758 youth um, to get them off the street, graduate them with a higher graduation than the city of Portland has. But over 90% of our students that come through the program that are unaccompanied homeless youth graduate from high school. Um, it's pretty impressive. And most of that is done, people laugh, with little money. As in, we find volunteers to house a youth. And sometimes it could be something like a church that has an empty home and we can put four youth in them and the entire church wraps around them. And they become an extended family for these youth. And these youth sign an agreement. We the, the only thing that costs us is to monitor them with a social worker and to ensure that they're going to school, they're staying off drugs, um, that they've got a good, livable, non-judgmental relationship with their host home, which could be a family or a retired person, um, that we vet these people, obviously, first. And then we match them together and we get these young adults into a position where they're not only graduating from high school and they're proud of their achievements. And in many cases, we help them either line up technical training, vocational training, a university. One student wants to be a doctor now, but to get them to a path of hope mm -hmm. so that they're not on the streets they're not stealing. It's less of a burden on the state and they add to the workforce that we already need and don't have. So this is a, this is a program that I'm very proud of. I mean, we have seven different programs. Um, and again, I'm not going to go into all of them, but I'm very proud of the work that we're doing. I think that's um, and, and, you know, very thankful for the support of, of folks who support, um, church world service and, and others who without their support, um, that support comes to us and, and helps us continue to do this work. So, um, yeah, just profoundly thankful and, and proud of, of the work that we're doing here at Emo. I, I, and this is absolutely uh, great and important. Um, I, I do have a question for you about this comment that you made about, you know, shrinking church and deals. Before I do that, um, let us quickly ensure that the listeners know where to find your organization. So you have a website and they can find out more about what, what you do. What, what is the uh, website? Uh, absolutely. Our website is em oregon.org that's www.emoregon.org and um you can see all of our services that we provide mm -hmm. the work that we're doing especially you know right now with the increase of afghan and ukrainian refugees mm -hmm. um, again with the support of church world service we are in this tough housing market we are finding them a place to stay we're providing human dignity in the way that we do it. And we're continuing to expand the services where they're needed the most. Um, so you'll find all that information on our website, our work on environmental justice, not mm -hmm. just charity, but justice, and how we're looking to collaborate and work with others in the ecumenical world, and also um, with a broader range of partners. 
Um, so thank you. Thank you for letting us um, put that out there to your listeners and to any of you listening out there. Um, I will put my email out there and that's frank at emoregon.org. Uh, feel free to contact me if, if, if you're interested in our work. And, um, and of course, you know, Maurice and, and his podcast. So happy to be here and, and spread the word. Yeah, no, you'll make sure that that all of that is also mentioned in the podcast notes. But, um, Frank, I'm going to accelerate it because I have a couple of questions that I really would like to ask. Um, you know that this podcast is a spin-off of a 100-mile walk that I you know, started in 2012 to raise awareness um, and funds uh, to end hunger, poverty, and injustice. Um, while I'm walking, um, so I, and, you know, the walk takes place in five to seven days, so 15, 20 to 20 miles a day. Um, and very often I'm accompanied by co-walkers, I call them like that. And we talk about, you know, spirituality because walking has something, you know, you start thinking about, you know, where I am on this earth, you know, what drives me. Um, the question that I have for you, because I often talk with this uh, about this with my co-workers is about what do you see happening among youth and religion and spirituality? Because some of my co-workers say, oh, it's very different. You know, they are they don't want to have anything to do with institutionalized religions. Others are saying, yes, but so. So what do you see? Uh, Frank? Yeah, I you know, I think uh, and as as any as any of us take a walk. What we're really doing is we're we're seeing our surroundings. We're seeing and and hopefully you're seeing nature. And sometimes when when we look at things that are in the nature scheme, we realize that they're beyond us. They're they're more in the divine than they are in 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 the in our day to day world. Um, it's the greatness of the sky. It's the beauty of a the colors of a flower that we don't control that are part of nature, that are part of something greater than us that sometimes we cannot explain. And it comes back to, to, to that essence, which is greater than us. What, what, where does this all come from? And whether it's Allah, whether it's God, whether however you want to call it, that spirituality is really what is more transversal in all humans. It has no label. And I think when we're looking at youth, youth, these days and i it really again i think youth could be extended to the age of probably 26 which is uh, youthful to us maurice as, as we're getting older but but i i do feel that when we talk about youth we're talking about a segment of the population that is asking questions that we before may not have asked ourselves mm. even when i look at my parents and i discussed about how they don't feel like they should touch an entitlement or they save up all their money for a rainy day or not take a vacation. Their, their, their way of thinking is, is a way of thinking that has changed even with us where we tend to take more vacations. We tend to spend more money on technology. My parents are more hesitant with that. And granted they're in their late seventies. And so now as I look at uh, the youth that are coming after us, the youth that are coming after us are asking very important questions, especially after a traumatic world pandemic. They're asking themselves, what's important to me? Um, and as 350 plus Americans die daily still of, of COVID, um, I think that impacts our society and it makes the youth really think about if if I only had so much time, what do I want to do with their with our time? And and we've seen post-COVID 
youth affected by a lot of these challenges that are now more commonly discussed about uh, inflation, wage increases, racial violence. And we're also seeing the faith community and the way that they react. As we start asking questions about our time on earth, we start discussing what's important to us. And that's something greater than our jobs, greater than our physical belongings. That is spirituality. And that spirituality may not be in religion. It may be, and it may be not be in religion. But the causes which are affecting a lot of people to come out and protest on the streets, not just about George Floyd, but about the environment, about other things, are all based on that value that they have in themselves that is intrinsic, that it's maybe played out more in different labels of religions, but it's actually just inherently part of us and part of what I would say, the, the, the soul of what God has given us. Because I, I am a Christian, so I do believe in, in God, um, but I don't believe necessarily in the, that labels um, do that justice either. And I, I get that when you talk about that. Um, and so I, I, I do understand some of that feeling the, of fighting for social justice causes, not wanting to do charity, but justice. And I have participated with many youth in different rallies all over the world. And I could tell that they want better. They have more access to information. Now, granted, some of that's bad information, but they do have access to a lot more information than we did. Mm-hmm. They're able to get that information faster than we did. I remember graduating college and not having a cell phone. The internet was just starting up as a dial-up. I remember when there was no internet. And now we're talking about a future 10G. So with information becoming faster, with people understanding injustices, and the power of the many is really looked at as a driving force instead of the power of the few, I think youth are, and they're more in control of their future, they're starting to ask the questions of, do I need religion? Mm. And I think it's it's a question that we need to have discussed instead of shunning away from it and saying, oh, no, no as, a, as a Christian, I can't discuss it. As a Catholic, I'm not sure about the use of pronouns. If anything, I think there are some youth that are looking more at faith as a way to streamline their thoughts, but a faith that's more open, not a faith that's more closed. Mm. I think that's the direction that we're going as a country that we want to be able to talk about things. And when we can't talk about things because of a doctrine of a, any type of labeled religion, then you're going to see people leave it. I want to piggyback on something that you said that, uh, you know, youth is worried about they're worried about the future about what's happening with the world today um i think uh, that really as a world we thought about this in terms of you know we need to set uh, goals that will really take the planet and people you know keep that in mind and as a result we came up with the 17 sustainable sustainable development goals they're not perfect um but at least you know it's it's something to hold on to um so I have a question for you about that. Um, 
I know that you are aware of the SDGs. So I'm not going to ask you that. I I want you to ask you, what do you want the listeners to know about the SDGs, about the Sustainable Development Goals? And then a question related with that is, we are not reaching those goals if we continue like this. And a growing group of people around the world are saying one of the reasons that we are not you know, reaching those goals before 2030 is that we did not pay proper attention to the ability, skills, and knowledge that you need as an individual and as community and organizations. And, you know, they had conversations, questionnaires. They came up with the inner development goals. So uh, five goals, being, uh, thinking, relating, collaborating, and action. So you should not only work on the system changes, you also need to work on yourself and on your community and your organizations. So any thoughts on the inner development goals? So two questions. One is the SDGs sure. and the other is the IDGs. So on the SDGs, I do believe that probably one of the most important ones is looking at the equity in terms of uh, livability. And that really, the United States needs to be more forward leaning in that space. And by that, I mean, there's initiatives at every state level. I would say almost all 50 states are looking in this long session of their state legislatures and possibly into the next uh, legislative year about equities, salary equities, uh, pay, pay equity. That could be the largest way we as a country, not just look at a minimum wage, but look at a living wage where we tie the salary that or the hourly wage that one needs to make to rent. And if we're able to do that, and if people are able to live because they can pay their rent and their food. So if we can tie that to a model, then a lot of the other SDGs, especially as related here in the United States, will be taken care of by themselves. So one of the first SDGs, I think it's number one, is to end hunger. And we can't just do that by charity. We need to do that with justice. And justice means if we have equitable pay, then people will be able to buy food. They'll be less reliant on government for health and food, which are primary needs. And they, if they can take care of themselves that way, then you set forth a path of sustainability. And I think every state in the United States can do that themselves without the federal government. So that's on the SDG goals. I think that's the clearest, one of the most important ways for us to move forward. Mm -hmm. On your second question about these inner goals, you can do anything you want, but how you do them matters. Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon, for example, could do refugee services, could do a million other things. But one, it's where do we where do we add value? And two, it's how do we do it? And I think it's more than just providing youth, for example, in our homeless youth program, a place to live. It's providing them that wraparound service of knowing that they have a second family, not just a second home. It's the how we do it. You can get kids in front of a classroom and you can say, okay, this is what you're supposed to learn. But it's the how the teacher teaches that matters. It's how we do what we do that really makes the impact. And so when we talk about these inner goals, about relating, collaborating, we need to bring the youth to the decision-making. I was recently, um, two weeks ago, with Archbishop Desmond Tutu's third daughter, Naomi, Reverend Naomi Tutu, her most important 
call to action, which resonates here in Portland, is how do we involve youth in decision-making? Because ultimately, if we want any goals to be filled, it has to come from them. There has to be a buy-in. And if we want this to be sustainable, the youth are the only way to make this sustainable. So how do we relate? How do we collaborate? And how do we put it into action? It has to be a buy-in process from the beginning. And you can't bring them at the end. It's like any politician who wants to get someone to vote. You can't just show up the day before the election and say, give me your vote. It's that relationship building. And we have to incorporate youth. So as you look at a target, yes, it's important to relate. Yes, it's important to collaborate. It's who are we inviting to the table? Even as, as you're asking people to walk with you and the listeners that are here, we may be preaching to the choir. What I would say to all your listeners is it's really how we're doing what we're doing. How are we talking about this with others? Are we just talking about it with like-minded people? Or should we be trying to get ourselves out of our comfort zone? That's the how. And how we listen to others, even though we may not like what they're saying, so that they can later listen to us is important. That is how we collaborate. That is how, if we want to relate, we have to relate with people who think outside of our box. If we want to get these SDGs to work, we've got to have those open and honest conversations, which are difficult to have. And that's not just the United States and China on pollution. That is here in the United States. That is here in your community. That is here in your neighbor who may have a very different opinion. And so we need to go local, local on those issues. You, you mentioned actually in the beginning of the conversation, you used the word connect and, you know, and what you just also alluded to, you know, for me is, is part of connecting, connecting people. You mentioned dialogue, uh, listening, uh, you know, different perspectives. So, so um, I try to connect my guests with each other uh, as well through this podcast. So I have a question for you from a previous guest. My question, I think, would be, how do you show up for other communities? How would you describe how you show up? And what does it mean to show up for a community? I think there's three ways to look at this. Um, the first is to literally show up. <laughs> so there are community events. There are um, processes to engage um, with a broader community. I, in my role right now, someone once mentioned, Frank shows up to events. And yes, you do have to represent. So there's there's that physical act of showing up to support. Because when you show your presence, you show that you're dedicating time that you will never get back to the causes that you believe in. For me, it's been sometimes a press conference on with responsible gun owners and community leaders to say, there should be a three-day wait limit when somebody wants to buy an assault rifle. Sometimes it's to show up at an event where there are communities that don't want uh, small pods being built in churches on church lands with for homeless individuals. It's to show up to say, not just I support or I don't support, it's to show up to say, I care. 
I care about this topic. Um, it's to show up to say, this is the information that you need to have. So that's, I think just the physical showing up is important because it shows that you care and it shows that you support, even sometimes that you support the dialogue. Mm -hmm. The other way to show up, um, I think is, is, is a skill that I've learned from a lot of my family members. And that is um, how you show up in terms of your actions. Um, and, you know, these days, it's not just a matter of voting. It's a matter of donating. You've got to put not only your mouth where, or, or, your, or your, your, your feet where your mouth is in terms of getting to an election uh, ballot and, and voting, but it's also putting your money where you feel your values are and supporting that. You could say it's the same thing with folks that are talking about all this misinformation and folks, you you, you got to pay for the newspaper subscription. You got to read in depth. Um, I think that's important. So you show up by your actions. You show up by paying for the things that you believe in, donating to the things you believe in, um, contributing. And sometimes that's something as small as contributing to to an animal rescue foundation. You know, everybody has their passions. Sometimes it's what you offer at churches. Sometimes it's to say, you know what? I really believe in these goals of this nonprofit or um, of this leader. And I'm going to contribute to make sure that that's where the direction that we're going. That's very important. Um, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. We, we have to ask ourselves, what do we really believe in that we want to show up to? Um, and we have to stay away from the rhetoric, both on the extreme left and the extreme right. We've got to avoid that hard rhetoric that doesn't really find solutions. And we've got to support and show up for those things that really are solutions that will bring us to a better place, not just to a rhetorical place. And then the last thing that I would say is in terms of showing up is you need to show up for yourself. If we don't show up for, and this sounds weird, but the, the greatest love is the love for God and the love for, for yourself. If you don't love yourself, you can't help other people. And if you don't show up for yourself and take good care of yourself, you're also not a good example for others. Um, and that is how you take care of yourself. That is that walk that you take, Maurice, and you reflect and you think. Show up for yourself so that when others are in crisis, you can show up for them by your example. And I think um, showing love for yourself is a primary, most fundamental need that sometimes we put to the side when we try to take care of others. And we have to be the example of others to say, this is what I need myself so that others can do themselves that same favor. Thanks for that, Frank. And I, I think actually, knowingly or unknowingly, you you linked that back to the inner development goals, what you just said. Um, <laughs> your question for the next guest. Ooh. If you could have one wish, what would it be? That's all. Music is very important uh, to me. So I always have a question about music as well. If I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best embodies who Frank is for a big part, um, 
which song or piece of music would that be and why? Oh, that is so hard. That is so hard. So, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a fan and a lover of music and I, you know, I'm nostalgic to the Beatles. I'm nostalgic to the mamas and papas, but um, to my generation, um, I was just listening to this song. Well, I listened to two songs. So I'm going to, I'm going to evade your, your question by saying there are two songs on the radio that came up mm -hmm. that reminded me of, the, the abundance that and the opportunities I've been given as I reflect and driving through the streets of Portland, I used to listen to these two songs in the nineties. Um, one is bittersweet symphony. And the other is breathe by telepop. And those were two songs that I listened to when I was in high school. And now I drive through those same streets and I was listening. I had a flashback today and there were homeless folks living on those streets. And I'm glad now that as I listen to that, I'm, not saying, oh, no, look at that, but rather, oh, I know Derek who lives on that block who's homeless and we're helping some of the youth in this same area that are facing homelessness um, continue their education and find hope. So as your listeners uh, listen to maybe those two songs, um, sorry to add the extra, but I do think they're great songs. Um, think about how how we stop every once in a while and not look at the numbers of people that may be on the streets or in wars, but stop and ask them how they're doing. Even if we don't feel like we can offer them anything other than to see the human and the humanitarian assistance that we try to provide. Um, and, and just to remind the listeners, and I don't know if you are aware, but we made a, a Spotify uh, playlist of all the songs that have been uh, selected, uh, picked by the guests. So if you go to Spotify, hashtag Walk Talk Listen, um, you will be able to listen to all the songs from classical music to hard rock. And now, you know, Frank, your two songs will be added to that as well. Thank you. Um, I have a couple of quick questions for you. And then, um, you know, this goes fast and then we're done. If I ask you to come up with one simple act of kindness um, now, right now, on the spot, this week, uh, what simple act of kindness would you do? Write a handwritten note. Doesn't have to be long. And send it to a former teacher or a former mentor. And just tell them that they made an impact in your life. That's all you need to say. Great. And and uh, I hope you will really do that. Um, yeah. Any any message, question, or invitation for the listeners? Absolutely. Um, have those difficult conversations. We're not far away from another election year when tensions rise. We need to be aware of that um find find ways to engage your neighbor and be that example for the people around you and if any of you happen to be in the portland metro area portland oregon on september 19th we're having our annual gala and you're more than welcome to come and uh celebrate with us some of our work um that emo has done and 
Um, if we could be of any service to you or your communities, wherever you're listening, please know that we are a resource and uh, we stand by you and, and, and your work to create stronger and more cohesive communities. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Frank. Um, yeah, the, these conversations always go fast. Um, uh, yeah, any questions that I should have asked you that I didn't? Um, you know, it's very hard because I think there's, there's um, I, coming from working at, at, at the White House uh, with some of the most interesting principals, uh, people always ask me, um, what is it like to have worked for Barack Obama um, or, or the such? I, I will say um, probably my fondest memory um, of, of being next to a wonderful man who was president for two terms um, was realizing that he was the man that you saw on TV. He was genuinely um, a person who would stop and talk to the person sweeping the floors or would love to go down to the kitchen of a convention center and meet the people who made the food um, and thank them because they normally would never be able to make it to the main hall. Um, but to see that act of humility and humbleness is um, something I've carried with me for, for a very, very long time. And that image of that little kid who was my age, who was looking through the glass when I was eating food and he was definitely homeless. Um, some of those images are important to remember because they bring you back to what's important. Now he's my age. I hope he's well. And um, because of him, I have a responsibility to do more. And so I would encourage everybody to, to ask yourself, um, what are those thoughts of places you've seen um, or you felt that you couldn't help, but now you 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 may be able to help. Um, so those are the qu kind of questions sometimes that I'm asked that, you know, about who's been a great mentor, who's been a great leader, and what continues to to motivate me to do what I do. So, um, yeah, Maurice, you've asked all the good questions. I'm I'm sure your your listeners may have others, but uh, yeah, but thank you for this opportunity. No, thank you, uh, Frank, and. and uh... Yeah, for, for being there, for who you are, for what you do. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Fabulous. Well, I hope to uh, walk, talk and and listen to some of your other podcasts and, and um, know we're in solidarity. Great. And and actually, we have something in common as well, because you were, uh, before we, we started, we were talking about food and somebody said to me that I had to expand the title of my podcast and make it walk talk listen <laughs> and eat because i always talk about food so and i know it's that's also important for you so um, yeah well you know breaking bread together mm. is so important it's one thing to have a meeting but when you sit around and you break bread when you share a meal together even if everybody pays their own bills or whatever um it's really significant mm. um throughout many cultures some people use tea some people literally eat out of the same bowl with their fingers. Um, but there's something significant about having a meal together with others. In many ways, it's that people say there's taboos around the dinner table because they hold the dinner table to be so important. That time together to share a meal is so important that you don't want to ruin it with certain topics. So 
I think uh, that podcast, that next podcast could be, you know, something, something very similar along those lines, because it's, um, it's important to, to, to know that you're coming together to, to be in, in communion, to be in unity, to be in fellowship with each other. Thanks, Frank. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.